0: Last time we spoke about the drive to lay in Salamon, New Guinea and the mysterious Battle of the Pips. The boys on Green Hell were having a hell of a time trying to capture Mount Tambu. The Japanese had made a pillbox nightmare around Mount Tambu and reclaimed Ambush Knoll. Ambush Knoll was once again taken by the Allies, by Dwarf's commandos to be exact, but Mount Tambu was proving to be a much tougher nut to crack. Then in the frigid northern waters of the Aleutians, the Allies had just successfully retaken Attu, but at a horrifying cost. The heavy cost convinced the Allies Kiska would be a similar bloody affair, so they sought some Canadian help for the invasion. Yet before the invasion would occur, one of the strangest battles of World War II happened, the mysterious Battle of the Pips. The Americans found themselves firing at ghosts. But today we are venturing over to New Georgia. This episode is the Fall of Munda. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com Kings and Generals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at The Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you were still hungry for some more history, watch check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I've just released an episode on the Battle of Ramry Island and the mystery behind if a lot of Japanese were eaten by saltwater crocodiles. And hey, you can check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel to check out some exclusive podcasts over there. This month's exclusive podcast is on the responsibility of Emperor Hirohito during World War II. Check it out on Miralatame. The New Georgia campaign in many ways was akin to Guadalcanal. The Americans had suddenly invaded the island, landing numerous troops before the Japanese could coordinate a way to thwart them. Once the troops were landed, then the Japanese decided to react. And by react, I mean tossing troops of their own onto the island in the hopes they could dislodge the Americans. But just like with Guadalcanal, the War of Transportation was not one the IJN could seemingly win against the Americans. By the 2nd of July, U.S. forces led by the U.S. 43rd Division held an overwhelming advantage of 15,000 troops compared to the 9,000 Japanese. They had landed at Zenana, with a view to attacking westward towards Munda Point. It was a battle that took far longer than the Allies had envisioned. Stubborn Japanese resistance and their ability to infiltrate U.S. lines and cut supplies meant an advance at a snail's pace, despite their control of the air and sea. Yet while the Americans were chipping away, bit by bit, at the outskirts of New Georgia, the real defensive position was, of course, Munda. Up until this point, Major General Minoru Sasaki had done a great job of delaying the Americans while pulling his forces back to make a stand at Munda. Indeed, the Americans had a terrible time fighting the Japanese, and Mother Nature for that matter, as Sergeant Anthony Coulas described one advance as such. We alternatively crawled up and down greasy ridges. We forded numerous jungle streams and swam three of them, The repeated torture of plunging into icy streams, the chopping away of endless underbrush and foliage, the continuous drizzle of rain, the days without hot food or drink, the mosquitoes tormenting us at night. It was sheer physical torture. Sasaki had constructed a barrage of defensive entrenchments around the airport at Munda to halt the U.S. advance. As Admiral Halsey recalled, Rugged as jungle fighting is by now, we should have been within reach of our objective, the airfield. Something was wrong. The now-deceased Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto's plan to turn the Solomons into a killing machine in order to force the United States to parley for negotiated peace seemed to be working. With the battle turning into a stalemate, on the 15th of July, Halsey sent the famously tough Major General Oscar Griswold of the 14th Army Corps to New Georgia. Major General John Hester, who had turned down help from the Marines, was relieved from command of the 43rd Division, and he was replaced by Guadalcanal veteran Major General John Hodge. A landing craft tank captain named Jack Johnson described the operation as a, quote, Screw up. General Hester was army. I had him aboard one time. He was a little fart. He wore these high lace-up boots and carried a riding crop. However, a lot of the blame would be placed on Rear Admiral Turner, the commander of the amphibious forces who had insisted that Hester should retain divisional command as well as overall command of the landing operations. It also did not help that the 43rd National Guard Division were untested in battle. Griswold would find them in a state of near-psychological collapse, prompting him to request reinforcements from the 37th Division. The 37th Division was led by General Beitler, who was manning Renke Ridge, while to the south near the beach were the 43rd Division under General Hester's command until the 29th and the 25th Division of General Leighton Collins. Additionally, Marine tanks of the 10th Defense Battalion from Mendova were arriving to replace recent losses, and they would be critically needed to face the nightmarish Japanese pillboxes that the Americans would be facing. In front of the Americans was a complex of camouflage and mutually supporting pillboxes and fortifications amidst the thick jungle. These defenses dominated several high features, including Shimuza Hill, Horseshoe Hill, Kelly Hill, and Ranky Ridge. They were made out of crushed coral and coconut logs dug several feet into the ground, with just a small portion poking out for their machine gunners and riflemen. It was these types of defenses that plagued Hester's assaults. Across a frontage of around 3,200 yards, Sasuke had established a series of these defenses along a northwestern axis going from the beach to Iligana. Before the offensive could be kicked off, the 161st Regiment led by Colonel James Dalton discovered the Japanese-held Bartley Ridge, due east of Horseshoe Hill. Their reconnaissance indicated double-logged pillboxes. Bartley Ridge would be the most forward of the defensive positions and thus it needed to be seized first. To meet the enemy, Sazuki ordered Colonel Tomanadi's forces to launch a second counter-attack against whatever allied forces showed up to the northern flank and he also requested the recently landed Yano Battalion to reinforce the northern flank. However, Tomanari's men had suffered tremendous casualties, and he was still trying to rally the scattered men along the rugged highlands. Meanwhile, Colonel Yano was only able to send his 7th company to take up a position northwest of the 3rd Battalion holding Sankaku Hill, because his other men were needed to defend Villa. Because of this, Sasaki ordered the depleted 1st Battalion, 229th Regiment, to reinforce the Elegana Line. Colonel Hirata placed the 1st Battalion along the line between Sato's 2nd Battalion and Kojima's 3rd, which would turn out to be a key position. The offensive kicked off at first light on July 25th. Commander Arleigh Burke took seven destroyers through the Blanche Channel and bombarded the Lambete plantation for 43 minutes, firing more than 4,005 inch shells. Nearly at the same time, the new commander of the Air Souls, Brigadier General Twining, sent 171 bombers and 100 fighters to hit Munda, the largest airstrike thus far in the area. As Burke's destroyers were firing 5-inch shells, B-24s and B-17s led the air attack, followed by B-25s, Dauntless, and Avengers. It was described by many eyewitnesses as, quote, "...the greatest show on Earth." The Japanese were only able to toss back 57 Zeros at 9.40 a.m., who were intercepted quickly by a Randova patrol of 29 fighters who shot down six Zeros and lost four of their own. But from 6.30 to 7 in the morning, the 254 aircraft managed to drop 500,800 pounds of fragmentation and high-explosive bombs over the target area, a roughly 1,500 by 250-yard strip. The result was Enormous clouds of smoke hanging all over Munda. But Japanese casualties were considerably light. As the bombardment was quieting down, Griswold unleashed the ground forces supported by the 43rd Division's artillery who were firing more than 2,150 105mm howitzer shells and 1,182 155mm howitzer shells. Colonel Brown's 103rd Regiment advanced upon Illigiana Point, while the 172nd tried to envelop Shimuzu Hill supported by five tanks. The 172nd tossed their 2nd and 3rd battalions around the left and right of Shimuzu Hill, but by 10 a.m., even with the five tanks, the Japanese pillboxes had halted them all in their tracks. Three of the tanks were disabled because of vapor lock, and a ton of time was wasted by infantry trying to extricate them. 3rd battalion on the left-hand side tried to fight through some machine gun fire and motor fire, but found it impossible. The men tried to move around the pillboxes, but they found themselves fired upon by other machine gun positions. The 2nd Battalion 103rd Regiment attacked in the center of the 43rd Division zone and managed to progress 300 yards against lighter opposition. By 10.40 am, Company E managed to advance 500 yards and by noon reached a beach near Terori. As Company E tried hastily to create a defendable position, the Japanese moved behind them cutting their telephone lines back to the battalion HQ. Seeing the opening, General Hester tossed in some of his reserves in the form of Ramsey's 3rd Battalion, 169th Regiment. They were ordered to charge through the same gap made by the 3rd Company. But as they marched towards the gap, they were met with enfilade fire from the southern part of Shimuzu Hill and from some pillboxes to the south. The 169th were unable to exploit the gap, and now E Company was forced to pull back, lest they be encircled and annihilated. Over to the north, Beitler kept his 145th and 148th regiments in reserve until Bartley Ridge was neutralized. Dalton sent I. Company to contain the Japanese pocket by attacking it frontally, while the 1st Battalion and the rest of the 3rd Battalion performed a double envelopment. The 1st Battalion went around the left while the 3rd took to the right, seeing both driving southwards and northwards for 200 yards. The 1st Battalion led by Lieutenant Colonel Schlaftko-Katzarki, advanced 700 yards with only line opposition. But over on the other side, the 3rd Battalion of Lieutenant Colonel David Buchanan was halted at the very offset by heavy machine gun fire. By the second day, the 3rd Battalion would establish itself into a containing position north and south and east of Bartley Ridge. The company had to be taken out of the reserve and sent into the line on some high ground due north of Bartley Ridge to secure the right flank of the 161st zone. The 1st Battalion advanced a further 400 yards west of Bartley, and they took up a position on a small rise northeast of Horseshoe Hill. With the southern advance stalling somewhat, Colonel Stuart Baxter of the 148th was ordered to help the 161st's efforts at reducing the pocket on Bartley Ridge. He performed a limited advance and his 2nd Battalion led by Lieutenant Colonel Herbert Radcliffe gained 600 yards without meeting Japanese resistance. Meeting no resistance, the 1st Battalion led by Lieutenant Colonel Werner Heidecker took up the 2nd Battalion's position as they advanced further, allowing the engineers of the 117th Engineer Battalion to construct a supply trail behind them. Despite all of this, Griswold was frustrated by the failure of his 43rd Division's performance. Ultimately, Griswold blamed General Hester, who he wrote about in his diary that very night, stating this. I am afraid Hester is too nice for a battle soldier. He is sick and all done in. Tonight, I am requesting his relief from the division. The next day, he ordered the exhausted 172nd to hold their position, while the 103rd would advance 800 yards from Illigana Fortere. To support them, the artillery bombarded for over an hour, allowing the 103rd to advance with some tanks into the vanguard. A crucial component of their advance would be the 118th Engineer Battalion led by 2nd Lieutenant James Old, an acting Corps chemical officer whose men were equipped with flamethrowers who went to work spilling fire over the enemy pillboxes. This led to the vegetation over and around them being incinerated in a matter of seconds, and many pillboxes were simply wiped out. As I've said a few times in this series, the flamethrower would be one of the most devastating weapons in island hopping warfare. The flamethrower was gradually employed by both assault and mop-up operations. However, as useful as it was, it did hold some disadvantages. The equipment, as you can imagine, was quite large and heavy requiring the operator to get very close to enemy positions and thus extremely vulnerable. For flamethrower personnel to be able to close the distance required rifle team protection. But what if you could alleviate these vulnerabilities by slapping a big flamethrower to a tank? Generals like Griswold and Harmon at this point began mounting flamethrowers to tanks and although it would not see the limelight at Munda, the quote fire tank as it would become known, would become the most devastating weapons against the Japanese defenses. By mid-afternoon, Brown's 103rd Regiment managed to reduce around 74 pillboxes along a 600-yard front, successfully occupying Iligana and continuing the coastal advance until Kia. While it was a great victory for Hester, it failed to change Griswold's mind about relieving him. Back over in the north, Beitler ordered another assault on Bartley's Ridge. Six light marine tanks of the 10th Defense Battalion led the charge at 9 a.m. Companies L and K advanced in columns behind the tanks, tossing heavy fire from .30 caliber Browning Automatic Rifles, known as BARS for my uh, Call of Duty World at War veterans, if you remember that game. Yeah, I'm that old. They also had two flamethrowers. Unfortunately for the two guys carrying said flamethrowers, they were not properly protected by their rifle teams, and they were killed quite quickly. Very much like learning how to perform amphibious landings, it would take the Americans some time to learn how to effectively use flamethrower units. The men managed to overrun a dozen or so pillboxes, but the terrain soon saw the tanks getting stuck and Dalton was forced to order more and more men to extricate the tanks. During the morning hours, a Japanese soldier burst out of the brush and planted a magnetic mine to one of the stuck tanks disabling it further. A second tank was hit in its fuel line by gunfire, while the remaining tanks managed to pull back and reorganize by 11 a.m. After five hours of combat, Buchanan's 3rd Battalion had lost 29 men and only progress about 200 yards or so, and thus they were forced to pull back. On the 27th, Beitler committed his 2nd Battalion, 145th Regiment, to reduce the defenders on Horseshoe Hill. They managed to occupy a knoll connecting Horseshoe Hill called Wing Hill, but heavy fire from Horseshoe Hill eventually dislodged them. Meanwhile, Colonel Tomanani finally managed to rally his men together for an attack against the 148th's northern flank, while Sazuki sent a machine gun detachment, which was actually just some anti-aircraft gunners, to ambush the 148th Engineers, causing Colonel Baxter to order companies A and D to rush over to protect them. Over to the south, General Hester began tossing some more aggressive actions in combination with artillery and motor bombardments gradually pushing the Japanese off high ground. The 43rd Division was slowly advancing yard by yard on the right flank, now reaching within 500 yards of the coast. But the eight tanks of the 9th Defense Battalion were demolished in such attacks. On the 29th, the 1st Battalion 169th Regiment had to be brought over from Rendova to take up a position between the 103rd and the 172nd Regiments. Alongside four tanks from the 10th Defense Battalion and some engineers wielding some flamethrowers, Hester now had enough hardened forces to push the Japanese. Because of the continuous fighting, all the American regiments were becoming veterans. Pockets of Japanese that would have once held back an entire American battalion, possibly even a regiment, were now being reduced quickly and efficiently. The technique for reducing pillboxes, whether it be from isolating them or overwhelming them, was becoming mastered. Broken down, this process began with a complete non-combative reconnaissance of the Japanese defenses. This was followed up by a reconnaissance in force, usually by a platoon with extra units who would uncover a portion of the Japanese positions. The assault consisted of parts, preparing an artillery bombardment, usually consisting of motors, firing off the bombardment, then storming in. The Babarmas usually got rid of the brush and foliage, improving visibility so the enemy could be targeted and damaged. If done efficiently, the Japanese would flee their pillboxes to take refuge. Flamethrowers and tanks made the process a hell of a lot easier for the finishing touch. Soon the Japanese were being pushed to the crest of Shimizu Hill. However, while Hester was definitely picking things up, Griswold was determined to relieve him of command nonetheless feeling the man had simply exhausted himself. Now Major General John Hodge would take over the 43rd Division. Meanwhile to the north, Beitler's 161st Regiment infiltrated abandoned pillboxes on Bartley Ridge near its crest. Over on Horseshoe Hill, the Japanese were being hit with heavy bombardments while the 2nd Battalion reoccupied Wing Hill and companies G and F crept up their way to the crest of the hill. However, once near the crest, they began to be pinned down by machine gun fire. The 1st Battalion was hitting the hill from the southeast, meeting heavy fire as well, and they managed to reach 15 yards of the top of the crest before being halted. By 5.30pm, the 2nd Battalion was forced to withdraw to the foot of the hill, but two companies from the 1st Battalion did dig in on the crest. The Americans had 24 deaths and 40 wounded. Over on the other side, during the night, Tominari's main forces of 400 men arrived ready to attack at dawn. They attempted to move behind the rear of the 148th as Baxter's troops were advancing to Biblo Hill. Baxter's force was spread out quite thinly across 1,500 or so yards, and they happened to be around 800 yards west of their main regimental ration and ammunition dump. The Japanese from a high ground position began firing down upon them with machine guns, rifles, and grenades as forward units stormed the rations and ammunition dump. A ragtag group of service company soldiers rushed over to defend the dump, returning fire upon the Japanese. Major Frank Hip of the 148th took command of the force, managing to hold back the Japanese. However, as a result of this near-catastrophe, Beitler ordered Baxter to withdraw on the 29th. Beitler believed the enemy was coming through a gap between the 148th and the 161st, greatly worrying him. Back over at Horseshoe Hill, Companies G and F reached the crest while Company E was hitting its northern side, supported by machine gun crews from H Company. The fighting for the north side resulted in hand-to-hand combat, seeing Company E make some progress. But by nightfall, the 2nd Battalion again was withdrawing down the hill. The actions ended disastrously, as the men were hit hard as they tried to withdraw down the hill, taking enormous casualties and gaining nothing in the progress. On the 30th, Bartley Ridge and Shimizu Hill remained in Japanese hands as Beitler and Hodge were reorganizing their exhausted forces. That morning, Baxter finally began his withdrawal, miserably under some heavy rain, with Tominari's troops harassing them through ambushes. The ambushes caused Baxter to order the men to dig in around the supply dump, and that night saw numerous soldiers dying for water begin to use their helmets as rain catchers. The next day, the 148th attempted another breakthrough, but Tominari's machine gun crews hammered them back towards the supply dump for another night. At this point, Sasuke received new orders instructing him to keep the supply lines to Columbanagara secure. He elected to prepare his men to withdraw to a new defensive line that would be anchored at Kokongolo Hill, which was just to the right, running east of Bibilo Hill towards the Munda-Barioko Trail, and then passes north to Hatchman Hill. Yano and his battalion were ordered to come over from Kolombangera to take up a position at Sankaku Hill. Garaita's 229th Regiment would hold Kokongolo Hill, and Tomonari would take up a position at Hachiman Hill. These orders came after the Japanese defenders had suffered tremendous losses over days of fighting. In truth, the Japanese defensive lines were formidable facing the American 14th Corps, and indeed the Americans had been held back for quite a long time. But the Americans brought terrible power. Their naval, artillery, and aerial bombing was constant. It was really hammering the Japanese. By late July, most of the Japanese emplacements near Munda were in complete shambles. Rifle companies that were typically 170 men strong had shrunken significantly, some down as low as to 20 men. The 229th Regiment numbered only 1,245 effective men. The hospitals could not hope to care for all of the sick and wounded as constant shelling rained hell from above. Aside from the sick and wounded, as a major result of the shelling, many men were suffering nervous disorders, to use the old term, from shell shock. But today we would call it Combat Stress Reaction, CSR. To compensate for the losses, Colonel Hirata simply ordered his men of the 229th to kill 10 Americans for every Japanese, and to do so to the death. That's kind of, I guess, what the Japanese at the time would call the fighting spirit, something that made the Japanese armed forces during World War II unique, perhaps rather tragically. General Nimamura decided to reinforce Villa with the 3rd Battalion of the 230th Regiment and six companies to buff up the 229th Regiment. This freed up the Yana Battalion to take up their new position on the new defensive line. Yet, still in the meantime, Japanese were still trying to define Shimuzu and Horseshoe Hill to give the rest of the forces time to withdraw. On the 31st, Major Francis Carberry's 2nd Battalion, 161st charged up Bartley Ridge, finding no resistance. Then at 4.45pm, the 15th Field Artillery began firing on Horseshoe Hill, while the American forces near its crest tried to dislodge the Japanese. Again, they were unsuccessful. By the late afternoon, Japanese were withdrawing from the Iligana line, covered by fire from Horseshoe Hill. During the night, Tomonari led his men to withdraw, but an avenger spotted his force fleeing through a valley overhead and called in an artillery strike. One of the shells hit Tomonari's HQ, killing a lot of his staff and nearly him. Tomonari's force had to abandon a lot of their equipment, but by dawn of August 1st, they had managed to assemble at Kokongolo and Biblo Hills. His 2nd Battalion alongside Hata's quick-firing battalion went into the tunnels of Kokongolo Hill, while the rest of the 1st and 3rd Battalions dug in on Bibilo Hill. Baxter received a message over the radio on the 1st of August from General Beitler stating this, Time is precious. You must move. Get going. Haste is essential. The order was to get every man Baxter had to take Shimuzu Hill. Baxter rallied companies A, E, B, and G into a skirmish line with bayonets fixed and charged at 8:50 a.m. By 9:30 a.m., the exhausted Americans reached Kozarski's position, where they handed the weary men fresh water and some hot food. Shimuzu Hill was finally theirs. Meanwhile, the 103rd Regiment began their own attack. Hodge had sent companies E, F, and G to march upon Limbetti, which they did, finding zero opposition. The rest of the 43rd found no opposition as they marched across Shimuzu Hill. By 3 p.m., they had advanced 700 yards. Bytler's men captured Horseshoe Hill without firing a single shot, as darkness fell on the 1st of August. Griswold ordered a general advance for the next day. Admiral Wilkinson brought a convoy bearing fresh troops of the 27th Regiment to aid Byitler's right flank, but it took them until August the 3rd to get into combat assembly. In the meantime, August 1st would bring with it a significant increase in artillery bombardment. The 43rd Division's artillery commander, Brigadier General Harold Barker, fired 2,000 rounds on the 1st, followed by 2,000 more on the 2nd, and an incredible 7,300 rounds on the 3rd, and 3,600 rounds on the 4th. The Munda area was turned into a literal inferno. Yano lost the commander and all platoon leaders of the 8th Company, Five officers died atop Bibolo Hill. Haramaseo was killed, leaving his 1st battalion to be commanded by Saito on August the 2nd. The tunnels on Kokongolo Hill were one of the few safe places to be, but a direct hit collapsed in an entrance to Sato's tunnel, burying him alongside 60 men, requiring an entire day for the other men to dig him out. The Japanese were forced to take refuge wherever they could, preventing Sasaki from stabilizing his new defensive line. Captain Segura Kaju brought reinforcements from the 7th and 8th Combined SNLF to Urbanta, where he loaded up the 3rd Baton, 23rd Regiment, to head for Villa Gulf under the escort of Admiral Nishimura's cruisers, Susia, Chokai, Kumano, Sondai, and destroyer Amagiri. However, the naval force was intercepted by PT boats near the Blackett Strait. The PT boats fired torpedoes at the Japanese destroyers, but none hit their target. Segura was able to land the reinforcements around Webster Cove but the Amagiri rammed PT Boat 109 just forward of her starboard torpedo tube, ripping away the starboard aft side of the boat. Two men were instantly killed, and one John F. Kennedy, yes, the future president, was tossed around the cockpit of the PT boat. Kennedy went to work getting the rest of the men to abandon the ship, around 11 in all. A few of them had serious burns, and they were forced to swim for an inlet about 3.5 miles away, known as Plum Pudding Island. Kennedy was the first to reach the island, and he proceeded to help tow the others to said island. The island was unoccupied, but a company of Sasebo 6 SNLF Marines were nearby at another inlet called Gizo. Seeing the Japanese barges moving around, the Americans would make their way east to an island near Ferguson Passage called the Rova Island. It would not be until the night of August the 7th when the Coast Watcher, Lieutenant Reginald Evans, found them and helped them reach PT Boat 157. For his courage and leadership, Kennedy received the Navy and Marine Corps medal alongside a Purple Heart for injuries he suffered. However, the medals would pale in comparison to the story written about the event by John Hershey for the New Yorker and Reader's Digest, which would give Kennedy a strong foundation politically. But back to the battle, on August the 2nd, Griswold's forces advanced across the entire front, and by the late afternoon, the 103rd Regiment had already reached the outer taxiways of Mundes Airfield. The 169th were approaching Bibolo Hill, and the 37th Division were 700 yards ahead of Horseshoe Hill. By the end of the day, the Japanese defensive line was basically Kokongolo to Bibolo Hill, and the Americans were closing in on both. The 103rd and 169th had units around the eastern end of the airfield, many men using wrecked Japanese aircraft as defendable positions. The 145th and the 161st were on the eastern ridges of Bibolo Hill, and the 148th were about to cut the Munda Barioku Trail. The Yano battalion's position was taken so quickly the Americans had failed to even notice they had overrun it. Thus, Yano withdrew northwards. On August the 3rd, the general advance continued and with more open terrain present, mortars became much more effective, speeding it up. The 169th were advancing up the eastern end of Kokongolo Hill. To the north, the 145th were advancing up the eastern ridges of Bibolo Hill. And the 161st were breaking through on the right as the 148th were now along the Munda-Barioka Trail. The situation was desperate that night, so Sasuke was forced to order men to withdraw yet again, now towards Zita. Hirata's 229th Regiment was to hold their position until sundown to try and give everyone some time. Then they were to act as a rearguard, so they could withdraw to Congo Hill. Sasuke likewise moved his HQ to Kyure's 6th farm at Zita. The next morning brought further misery upon the Japanese in the form of an airstrike. At 7.20 a.m., 25 Dauntless, 24 Avengers and 24 B-25s bombed Gerasi-Kindu Point, which is just due west of Munda airfield. Over there, the Japanese had constructed fortifications and emplaced many of their anti-aircraft guns. Griswold did not let up, seeing perhaps the final push against Munda right before him. Hodge's 43rd Division, with marine tanks leading the way, attacked Kokongolu Hill. Weitler's 25th Division were striking against the Japanese northern flank, freeing up the 148th and the 161st to advance west towards the beach. The defenders at Kokongola Hill offered strong resistance as they withdrew towards Kong Hill before the 161st managed to break through to the sea. The fiercest fighting would be found on Babillo Hill, where the 145th were fighting against the dug-in 229th Regiment. By the end of the day, both the 148th and the 161st broke through to the sea north of Kokongolo Hill, and the 145th nearly cleared Babolo Hill as the Japanese began to flee along a trail going to the Kuri 6 farm. With Bibolo Hill reduced, the Japanese began abandoning Kong Hill to continue retreating northwards. Griswold's forty third Division tossed mortars, infantry, and tanks across Kokongoldo Hill, driving away the very last of the Japanese from their tunnels, bunkers, and pillboxes. Their forces soon crossed the western part of the Munda airfield. General Wing grabbed a military telephone and he called General Hodge from Bibolo Hill, stating this Munda is yours at two ten today. In turn Griswold radioed the good news over to Admiral Halsey. Our ground forces today wrestled Munda from the Japs and presented to you as the sole owner. To this, Halsey replied, A custody receipt for Munda. Keep him dying. Munda had fallen at long last. The Americans had suffered 4,994 casualties since July the 2nd. The Japanese had around 4,683 deaths, with an untold amount of wounded. With Munda captured, Tomanari was ordered to withdraw to Kolombangera to take command of the Villa defenses, while Sazuke would move his HQ to Baroko, then move by barge to Villa as well. The 3rd Battalion, 23rd Regiment, was deployed at Banga Island to cover the Japanese withdrawal using some mountain guns. Admiral Oda's SNF Marines were to defend Arundel Island. While these forces made the retreat, Admiral Simejima elected to carry out another reinforcement run. He would transport the Mikami Battalion on August the 6th with Admiral Injun, carrying two other companies of replacements to Buon. Sugura would once again be sailing from Kolumbangera. Sugura had the destroyers Hakikaze, Kawikaze, and the Arashi, while Injun would have the destroyer Shigete. Meanwhile, Admiral Wilkinson received reports from a PBY that sighted Sugita's ships passing by the Buka Passage. So he ordered Commander Frederick Moosbrugger to depart to Lagi and to sweep the Villa Gulf. Moosbrugger had the destroyers Stack, Steret, Lang, Dunlap, Craven, and Mori. He sailed south of Rendova to enter the Vela Gulf. He took his time, going only 15 knots, to create as little wake as possible so Japanese floatplanes would not spot him and he was just northwest of the coast of Kolombangera by 11.25 p.m. Moosbrugger's plan was to divide his force into two formations, a torpedo division consisting of Dunlap, Craven, and Maury, and a gun division consisting of Lang, Sterrett, and Stack. The torpedo group would attack first once radar contact was made, while the gun group would cut across the bows of the enemy to open fire as the torpedoes were expected to hit. This was, quite noticeably, the first time in the Solomons campaign the United States Navy planned to use torpedoes as its primary weapon. All six of Moosberger's destroyers held SG radar. But, much more importantly, at this time an advancement had been made to fix the idiotic Mark 14 torpedoes. The defective magnetic exploder was fixed, and the settings that made them run too deep was fixed. Admiral King was responsible for the first fix while Moosbrugger on his own accord ordered the torpedoes to be set at a minimum running depth of 5 feet. Sugura knew full well he most likely did not hold the element of surprise, but he was prepared to fight as he entered the Villa Gulf with his destroyer Hakikaze in the lead. Moosbrugger's force was passing through the Gizo Strait before turning southeast towards Blackett Strait. Then the Americans turned north up the gulf, with a torpedo group leading the way during the dark hours when at 11.33, Dunlap's radar made a contact, bearing 19,700 yards away. Lewis immediately changed course to close in and he began to line up his torpedo attacks. For once, the Japanese lookouts failed to spot the Americans, most likely due to a lack of moonlight. At 1141, at a range of around 4,500 yards, Moosbrugger fired 22 torpedoes and at 1146 turned his ships 90 degrees as the gun group made a course to cross Sugata's T. At 1142, Sugata's lookout spotted the American ship's silhouettes and torpedo wakes, but it was far too late. At 1145, 7 out of the 22 torpedoes found their targets. Two torpedoes hit the Hagikaze, three hit the Hirashi, and two hit the Kawikaze. Hagikaze was hit aft of her engine room, bringing her to a stop. Ashi's machinery spaces were destroyed, and Kawikaze was hit under her bridge, detonating her forward magazine, sending her ablaze. Shigure would be found later to have been hit by a torpedo which had failed to explode. The three destroyers were disabled and burning wrecks. The Japanese fired eight torpedoes in return, none finding a target as they frantically tried to turn northwards to escape the situation. The gun group opened fire, sinking the three crippled destroyers in the course of an hour, killing 820 of 940 troops on board. The Japanese would later send four barges to try and rescue survivors, with around 310 out of the 1,520 Japanese sailors and soldiers being rescued, including Sugihara. The IJN received a night action defeat, which also killed and prevented reinforcements for New Georgia. It was a disaster the American torpedoes would soon strike fear at the IGN. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by May. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Maybe you like memes. Why don't you check out my recent episode I did on Memes of the Pacific War, which was edited by a friend of mine. Also, over on my Patreon, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel, we are about to start the month's vote for what will be the exclusive podcast for next month. So, please don't miss out. Check it out. It would mean a lot to me. Munda had fallen at long last, though it came at a terrible price. Now, with the airfield in American hands, the battle for New Georgia would come to a swifter end. The United States Navy finally got a chance to deliver a torpedo blow to the IJN, And quite a devastating one it was.